Luke 24, uh, verse 36, and we're going to just read through the end of the chapter. Uh, hopefully the, the verses will be on the screen. Otherwise, there's some Bibles in your pews usually. Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and, though they, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And we had, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Right, church, so this is our final passage in the Gospel of Luke. We've been preaching, I don't know what you're supposed to say, we've been preaching through this book for a few years now, and we end on a very fitting note, as Jesus finally gives his disciples and gives us clarity on, why are we here? What are we supposed to do? What's our message? And how in the world are we supposed to accomplish this commission that Jesus gives his people? But before Jesus goes back to, his, to the Father, he needs to give us a special gift, a special promise for us to be able to do what he's called us to do. So let me give you a little context. According to Acts 1-3, after Jesus was resurrected, he was with the disciples and other followers for about 40 days. And so what we're reading right here at the very end of the Gospel of Luke is just kind of a highlight of a few things that Jesus said to his followers. And so let's take a look at some of these highlights. Chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So this first section is not the main point of our whole passage, but it's interesting because this theme keeps going, coming up over and over and over again. Jesus has risen from the dead, conquered death, and then every single time people talk to him or an angel about Jesus, they keep drawing people's attention back to the scriptures, which is kind of interesting because you think that uh, we have the risen Jesus right here. No, no, no. Don't talk to me about that old book. Talk to me about Jesus. And yet they keep bringing back to the scriptures. 
And Jesus, as he has these final moments with his disciples, bring their attention to the scriptures. And just not any scriptures, but how Jesus fulfills all the scriptures. That their confidence in his resurrection is not just that he is physically there and there's physical proof, but that he's pointing to passages and saying, you see, I fulfilled that. You see how I said this at the cross. You see how this one moment happened. That's me. I did all those things. I'm the fulfillment of all the things that the prophets have been saying for hundreds and thousands of years. I'm the, heart, I'm the longing of every heart that people have been crying out for centuries. That's me. And the way Jesus refers to the whole Old Testament here is very shorthand. They would do this, the Jews, they just talk about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that's representing all of the Old Testament, so if you were curious about that. But it's so interesting that Jesus, like I said, is pointing them to God's word. I, I want to share a quote from a pastor up here on the screen. You can see it. Jesus did not want them to rest their belief in his resurrection on their personal experience alone. He was not interested in them, their becoming an esoteric coterie, an elite group with a special knowledge of Christ. Resting their faith on a miracle was not sufficient. He wanted them to ground their experience of his resurrection on the massive testimony and perspective of Scripture. Now, in the tradition I grew up, I had a lot of friends who had genuine, miraculous encounters with angels, with demons, visions of God, crazy miracles that you could not even imagine. Genuine miracles. I experienced some, and they experienced more than me. But what I found with a lot of my friends growing up is that though they had these genuine encounters with the supernatural, a lot of them were not discipled and trained and learned to find their confidence in God's word as their authority, as their foundation, as their standard, standard of life and truth and reality. The scriptures define reality for us. But if your definition of reality is based on your feelings and based on merely experiences, what happens when your feelings and your experiences change? If your foundations are experiences and your experiences change, then what happens to your foundation? Your foundation moves. And though we've been beating this drum week after week, talking about the uh, sufficiency of the scriptures in Luke in this very last few chapters, I think that's really, really important, especially in our culture that has no clarity on what is true, what is reality. Reality is constantly shifting beneath us. How many of you guys in the last few years were like, oh, okay, so that's what is true now, right? <laughs> so that's what I'm allowed to say about you. Right? I, I didn't know that everything changed, right? Because we don't have foundations anymore. And so I want to herald this again to you as my people and the visitors here is that this is our standard for truth. That the disciples, their confidence is not only in their seeing as believing as they see the risen Christ, but the fulfillment of Jesus in the scriptures. And if it feels good enough for them, it should be good enough for us. And so your confidence in the resurrected Christ is not based on if you all have had personal encounters with the risen Christ. Like the Apostle Paul is one of the few people who had a special encounter with the risen Christ even later on. You don't need that, though I pray for that. I love that. But you don't need that to have confidence in the resurrection of Christ. So yes, pray for miraculous encounters, but make sure everything is grounded and this is the standard. But now... The question lies, how in the world do we understand this book? It's not an easy book in many ways. We'll look at verse 45 with me. 
than Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus opened their minds to understand this word. When you follow Jesus throughout his ministry, there is moment after moment where the disciples hear Jesus unpack the scriptures or preach the word, and they're absolutely befuddled and confused of what's going on. And even though they grew up with the scriptures, many of them memorized large portions, they were confused, which is a good reminder for us as we share the word with other people or our children, and they're confused or they're frustrated. That's okay. That is normal, that we shouldn't be surprised that people don't understand the word or the gospel. One pastor put it this way, helpful quote, what these men, it's on the screen, these men needed and what everyone needs is the mind-opening work of God. Christianity is rational, but understanding the gospel is not merely intellectual. It takes a work of God for anyone to know Jesus in a saving way. If you do not have the spirit of God, illuminating God's word, it doesn't matter how learned you are, if you know Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, how many years you spend, you will not understand the heart of this word. Let me give you another passage that helps illuminate this truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, as they can't understand it. For only those who, under, who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. So, if you are a visitor here, you've been going to church, or maybe this is your first time, I'm so happy you're here. If you're just visiting, you're not a believer, you're a skeptic, you're not sure about Jesus, so grateful you're here. That takes a lot of courage. I know I don't just go into random mosques or different places that, are, that I don't have confidence in. So that's great. Thanks for being here. But if you've ever been like, I don't know what in the world you're saying, it could be that I'm not a clear communicator. And that's true in many ways. But it's more likely the fact that you are still lacking the most essential key to unlocking the scriptures. And we're going to get to that in a second. How did Jesus open the minds of the disciples? What did he do? By what means did he open up their minds? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helped them understand the word. Let me make something clear. On earth, even though Jesus is divine... He did his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did not start doing his miracles until he fasted and waited on, for the Spirit in the desert. The Spirit came upon him in the baptism, and then he went to the desert. And then only then did he start doing miracles. We often think when Jesus did miracles and reads people's minds and does crazy things, he's just drawing from his divine personhood. But no, no, no. He is depending on the Holy Spirit, which is really good news for us. Why? Because we're supposed to be like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And if Jesus did all that he did because he's God, what, what hope do we have to do and be like Jesus? But if Jesus was drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit to live the supernatural life he did, and then he says, you go do likewise, and then I'm going to give you the same Holy Spirit, then we can do the same things Jesus did. In fact, the Gospel of John said, greater works than these you will do. Because we have the Spirit. This is good news. Now back to the scriptures. We need the Holy Spirit to understand God's word. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that every single time that you open up God's word or every single time you sit under God's word under teaching, that you have no absolute chance to know what's in here, the true heart of this word, without the Holy Spirit? Do you functionally believe that? 
And I can, I'll tell you how you know you functionally do not believe that, and that is if the majority of the time when you read the Bible that you're not saying, Holy Spirit, open my eyes. Holy Spirit, I don't know anything. I'm full without you. That's why we have the practice every week doing this prayer of illumination. That's why we pray Psalm 119, 18 so regularly. Open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Church, if you're reading the Bible without a great dependency and, a, and, a, and just a I need you, Holy Spirit, kind of attitude, then you're not understanding God's word. If you think God's word is boring and lifeless, it's probably because you're not dependent on the Holy Spirit. See, see imagine, imagine the most beautiful painting in the world. And I know art is subjective, but imagine it's objectively the most beautiful painting. Everyone's like, that is objectively the most beautiful painting ever, right? Imagine this most beautiful, objective painting in the world. It's, it's before a blind guy or a guy who's losing his sight. And the blind guy's looking at things like, I don't, I don't see what you guys are seeing. It's not that beautiful. It's kind of colorless. It's blurry. What are you guys talking about? Now, you guys are all following me in this illustration, right? There's nothing wrong with the picture. The picture is objectively beautiful. It's a masterpiece. What's wrong is the eyes are not functioning correctly, so it cannot behold the beauty that is there. Similarly, that's how it is with God's word. There's nothing wrong with this word. This word is not boring. This, this word is not dense. The problem is our eyes, our spiritual eyes of our heart are darkened. They're blind. And so we need the Holy Spirit to shine light in our eyes, give us spiritual contact lenses to see God's word rightly. So I want to call you, church, afresh. When you open up God's word this week, if you do, do it with a dependency of saying, Holy Spirit, I won't see anything. I won't feel anything. I won't savor. I won't be able to apply anything without your Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus empowers the disciples to understand the scriptures and but now he also needs to empower them to understand the most essential reality in the scriptures. Everything in the scripture is true, but there are some things that are more important. So what they need to understand most centrally is the gospel, the good news. Now, what is the gospel? Well, we're going to see it right here spelled out in verse 46. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That last line was key. Would you read that out loud with me, that last line in verse 48? You are You don't witness to just beliefs or feelings. You witness to facts, to events. What happened on the cross was, is a historical event. Jesus dying, he had witnesses. Jesus rising, he had witnesses. So the disciples are called to share and be witnesses of this good news. That's why when people go out and share the gospel, they call it witnessing. We're being witnesses of the risen Christ. Well, let's break down exactly what are they being witnesses of. First, this line, it is written. Remember, I, I've been saying this. I'm going to keep beating this drum. The scriptures prophesied that this Messiah, this Christ, would suffer. And Jesus did indeed suffer, as was prophesied. But like we've said many times before, that sounds like a contradiction. Messiahs don't suffer or die. Because their mindset of a Messiah is a conquering king that was going to come and liberate them from Rome and, and slay all their enemies. Yet this Messiah suffers and dies. But this Messiah not only suffers and dies, but he raises from the dead. 
or rises from the dead. I never say that right. Raises, rises, you guys get the point. But why would a Messiah like Christ do such a thing, a so-called Messiah do such a thing? Why did he not just come and conquer and slay all the wicked enemies? Well, because we are his enemies too. See, that, that, that's the complicated bind that God is in. He has great love for all people. God has unfathomable love towards all people. And yet he has inflexible justice towards wickedness. His justice does not flex based off of emotion or based off of our plea. It is standing, it's set. He's a holy God. He cannot betray justice because a betrayal of justice makes him an unholy, unjust God. So what should God do when he has both bursting at the seams love for people and yet righteous anger and justice that he must execute upon sinners like you and sinners like me. Well, God can create a way to provide a substitute for you and for me. God could come himself because the only person who could pay the substitute and be the one who could stand in our place would be someone who actually was righteous enough, someone who had no sin, someone who was pure enough. And so God himself is the only one who's holy. God is the only holy one, so he can stand in our stead, stand in our place, and bear the punishment we deserve. And so the good news is this, is that God graciously provides his son, who his son willingly and lovingly dies in our place and receives the punishment due for us. And the good news about that, see, that's, that's good, but it's only as good as, it, as how available it is. And that's where we get to verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So the good news is that those who turn from their sins, which is what the word repentance means, you're changing your mind, you're turning from yourself, from your, the world, and you're turning towards God, you're putting your hope and trust in him, will receive forgiveness. And that is proclaimed to all nations, not some nations, not certain ethnicities or certain races or certain socioeconomic classes, but all people. Anyone who wants forgiveness can have it. Aren't you glad that the gospel is not just for some people? Maybe you've taken that for granted. Maybe you grew up in church and you've heard it, so you're like, oh yeah, of course God will forgive everyone. That's God. That's what he does. But don't you realize that that is so weird? If you study world history, religions aren't for all peoples. It's for select people historically. And this gospel being available for all kinds of people, no matter your background, no matter the color of your skin, no matter anything, is incredible news. And I love this old song, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. 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 Not the well-to-do only, not the pretty, not the perfect, but anybody. But notice that this forgiveness is contingent on what? Repentance. Forgiveness and repentance are married together. You don't have forgiveness without turning. And so this is a great time for me to apply the gospel right now to this group I have the privilege of speaking to right now in front of me. Because there's a lot of visitors here, a lot of people here I don't know. And I'm so grateful you're here. And my heart 
I know that this may be hard for you to believe, but I actually love you. I love you, and I'm so grateful you're here, and I love you because God has loved me in an unfathomable way, merciful way. So the good news here is that anyone here, anybody in this room, if you want to turn from your sin and turn to God, he's not going to give you a waiting period. He's not going to say, wait, wait, tell me about your past. He's not going to say, how much money do you have? He's going to say, come to me. He's, well, he will receive you. But the, the, the condition is all of you, your whole heart, surrendered to him. And he will forgive every sin. I've shared this story before, but just thinking about this unreached tribe. And finally, this missionary shares the gospel after years of translating their language and learning, and he shares the, the gospel. And I think the village, you know, prostitute who've had multiple husbands, like the Samaritan women at the well in John 5, comes up to him in private, and she says with tears in her eye, she said, did you really mean that? Do you really mean every sin can be forgiven? Yes, every sin, every sin. Church, don't get callous to that truth, every sin. Even the one that you already apologized and went back to the next day, even that sin. Even the sin that no one knows about, even the sin that you're so ashamed of, every sin, not just some of them. Jesus, his death is sufficient for every sin. And if you want to stop being the king of your life, stop calling the shots of your life, stop trying to be your own savior, your own God, today is the day. You can come to him today. Please talk to one of us. We want to pray with you. We want to tell you what it's like to follow Jesus and the good news he has for you. Now back to our text. In order to be able to proclaim this gospel, we need help. Just like we need outside help to understand this word and we're helpless, we need outside help to be able to be his witnesses. Let me show. Verse 48. You are witness of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Whew, there's so much here. Here's the key that Jesus has been leading them up to. The disciples are about to lack the physical presence of God. He's about to ascend to be with the Father. And without Jesus, as we have seen, the disciples are not that great. They're blind. They're cowardly. They're, they're, they're dense. Jesus will literally say something to them, and, and they'll ask the same question. And Jesus is like, are you, are you serious? I, I just said that, right? They're, they're, they're struggling. They're not very um, uh, imitatable at this point. And so they need outside help. They need significant help, and I need significant help. Jesus is about to be exalted, and as he goes up, the Spirit of God is about to come down. Acts 2.33, we see this clear, clearly spelled out more by the Apostle Peter. Acts 2.33. Would you read this out loud for me, with me? Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. It's amazing. Let's break this down. So Jesus is sending them the Spirit. Why? Just very basic observation. In order for them to have power. Why do they need power? To be Jesus' witnesses. Jesus' witnesses of what? Witnesses of what? The gospel, the good news. And if this is true of the disciples, it's definitely true of you and me. You cannot be a witness without the Holy Spirit. 
So if you're here and saying, Sam, I get so scared and nervous to talk about Jesus with my friends and family. I get so timid. I don't know what to say. I stumble over my words. Great! You're in good company. Peter starts denying Jesus out loud because a little schoolgirl is asking him questions. If you are a coward, you're in, good, you're in good company. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to empower you to be a witness for Christ. Just like you cannot understand the glories of God's word without the Holy Spirit, you cannot be an effective witness of the glories of Christ without the Holy Spirit. So if you have struggled sharing the gospel for many years, or maybe in the most recent season, I want to just raise you. Maybe you're depending on your own strength. You're not depending desperately on the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, when I interact with unbelievers, and lately God has been giving a lot of opportunities to, to spend time with unbelievers, and you know what's going on in my head while I'm hanging out with them? Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. <laughs> Literally. I have an incredible amount of formal education in this Bible, more than most of church history will ever have. Okay, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that's the blessing I've had. And even with all this education, all this training, all these programs I've been, all these mentorships, all these classes, do you know what I'm doing? Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. I don't want to say, I don't want to say, I don't want to say. I need help. And every single time I meet with one of you guys for counseling or discipleship, do you know what I'm saying while I'm driving? Help me, help me, help me, help me. I'm just dependent because I can't change a life. You can't change a life. No matter how much you've learned, no matter how long you've been doing this Christianity thing, no longer how long you've been counseling or ministering, you need the Holy Spirit. Parents out there, Parents of little ones, parents of older ones, empty nesters, you know what you should be like every time you interact with your kids? Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. <laughs> help me, Holy Spirit. Help me, Holy Spirit. I'm going to make a full of, full of everything. I'm, I'm going to misrepresent you. I need you, Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in everything. And in other passages, we learn that you cannot have true power, joy, power over sin, boldness for Christ, and every little good thing that is not native to our hearts without the Holy Spirit. So if you're a professing Christian in here and you lack power in your life, Christianity is so powerless, so passionless, your heart is shriveled up, you're nervous and you never share about Jesus, our risen king, I, I want to gently but firmly just raise to you, you may not have the Holy Spirit. That's hard for me to say because I understand other scriptures that talk about how we can grieve the Holy Spirit and how there are different situations that can happen over time. And I know that sounds harsh, but if you have the Holy Spirit, what are you communicating with that statement? You are literally saying the God of the universe is inside of you. That's power. I mean, think about this. Think about the time when the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit, came inside of the temple. The glory of God enters the Holy of Holies. The smoke, the fire, the light, the priests are freaking out. The gods of glory just comes into that temple. All right, this happened in the Old Testament. God himself is dwelling among men in this special place. Imagine that happening. And imagine you walking around. You, you go back in time, you're walking around and you're saying, you know that? That's in me. That's in me. That spirit that's in that temple, that what you're seeing, that manifestation, that Shekinah glory, that's in me. So if your life is marked I'm not saying never or, or exceptions. I'm saying your char characteristically true about your life is little passion for Christ, little hunger for God's word, little love for people, little passion to share the gospel. May I suggest to you that says more about you and, and not about the Holy Spirit inside of you. 
Maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit inside you. Maybe you've never surrendered and been born again and received this promised Holy Spirit that is, has this transforming, empowering work in you. Because when the Holy Spirit goes inside of someone, it goes to work. It produces fruits that are native to the heart soil. It produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, increasing measure. Not perfectly, but truly. Remember, something can be true without being full and complete and perfect. But truly, over time, the Holy Spirit gets to work and transforms our thinking. And let me just tell you this. I, I'm about to celebrate 19 years in Christ on Thursday this week. And there are things that I used to do that I cannot even fathom that I used to do or say in the way I treated people. And do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit has been at work. So if you're not seeing the Holy Spirit progressively transform you over seasons, man, check your heart. That's a gut check for you. And if you are not sure you have the Holy Spirit, I have great news for you in the Gospel of Luke. Gospel, Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus promises and tells us that God is a good dad. He's not stingy. He's generous. And if you want the Holy Spirit, you can have Him. you got to ask, though. you got to humble yourself and say, God, I want your Spirit, and I'm giving up my control. Fill me up, but then to be filled up, you need to simultaneously let go of all the stuff that fills you up, all the love of the world, all the sin that you're harboring. You have to let go for the Spirit to replace. So if you're not sure you have the Holy Spirit, again, I implore you, I beg you, because I love you, talk with someone today. What greater gift could God give us than the Spirit, the gift of himself? Christian, if you are born again, you have the Spirit of God. And if, after, if that's the case, you have a limitless power available to you. If you know to know God truly and limitless power to be able to proclaim the scriptures fully to other people and to be witnesses for Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. So don't give me this, I'm shy, or don't give me this, I haven't done that before. You have the Holy, you have God inside of you. Who are you depending on? In the words of Yahweh to Moses, who made man's mouth? Stop looking at yourself. I hope you feel the love in that. I'm jealous for you to walk into the fullness of the gift that the Spirit of God has given us. So many churches are powerless, passionless, because they have either don't, they don't have the Holy Spirit or they've quenched the Holy Spirit so much that he's just kind of a bygone conclusion on the side. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you to move in our church at a new level this year. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Amen or oh me. And I say, oh, me, because when the Holy Spirit comes, he moves and he starts touching things that we don't often want him to touch. He starts moving out idols and convicting of sin. So if you want the Holy Spirit, you got to have all of the Holy Spirit. Now, back to our text. Verse 50. <clears throat> and Jesus led them out far, as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Okay, so what we see here is what is called the ascension. Now, I don't have time to unpack as much as is here, but there's so much here. First of all, Jesus blesses them with a benediction. Now, that's a kind of a churchy spiritual word, but a benediction was, is a historical reality for the Jews. After the Old Testament priests would do a sacrifice, they would speak a blessing over the people of Israel. What would this blessing be? It would be a confirmation 
that God has favor upon them, that their sins are forgiven, the sacrifice was accepted. So what is Jesus doing here? He is blessing his people. Your sins are truly forgiven. Peter, hey, your sins are forgiven. Hey, all the rest of you who abandoned me in my dark side, you're forgiven. My death and my resurrection is sufficient for you and your failures. He's blessing them. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Now, let me go over a few implications of the ascension of Christ. First, the ascension of Christ connects with the return of Christ. Look at Acts 1.11 with me. Would you read this out loud as, as I sneak another drink of water? Verse 11. And said, Men of Galilee... same way. Did you hear that? The ascension of Christ gives us a little glimpse of what it will be like when Jesus returns. In the like manner of his ascending, he's going to come down from the heavens. And Jesus will return with his glorious body. And what will happen to us? We will be transformed and we will get a glorious body. Amen? We talked about that last week. If you weren't here last week, I preached a sermon on the glorious body that God is going to redeem and give us. Next implication. The ascension means that Jesus is still near. Contrary to our assumptions, the ascension means that Jesus can now be closer than ever to the disciples. What I mean by that is when Jesus was bodily on the earth in his first incarnation, he could only be in one place at in one time because his humanity. But with his ascending, he is sending the Holy Spirit, and now God himself is mobile with every one of God's people everywhere they go. So yes, we are absent from the physical bodily presence of Jesus for some time till he returns. But right now, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. The Spirit of God is with us. All right, next implication. The ascension declares the victorious finished work of Christ. The only reason why Jesus would leave and join and return back to his father is because he has finished his work. He would not leave. He's not like many of us in the workplace who just leave before finishing our work. Jesus only goes to the father because he said it is finished. Though there is much more work for us to be done, to be done through us, the decisive victory over sin has already been won, church. And so we're just waiting we're waiting until all peoples, all those who have not yet heard, have a chance to hear. That's why Jesus said, that, that's why we hear these promises from the Apostle Peter. Why is Jesus not here yet? Well, because he's giving a chance. He's waiting. He's lovingly waiting for more people to hear. So church, our victory is won. Death's sting has been removed. And the ascension is a sign for us that Jesus is victorious and one day finish the battle. Where death will die, sin will no longer exist, and justice will reign. All right, one final one. The ascension marks the beginning of a different work of Christ. Though Jesus' work on earth was finished, that mission was finished, he's not just waiting around, just twiddling his thumbs. He continues to intercede on our behalf, stand before the Father praying for you by name, church. That's one of the greatest things you could ever hear. Have, have you ever met someone that you're like, man, you're, you're really close to God? And then that person who's really close to God prays for you. You're like, I'm really glad you're praying for me. 
I'm grateful for any prayer, but I'm, I definitely want that person to pray for me, right? Hey, guys, by the way, if I'm dying, get that person at my hospital bed, right? And who better to pray first than Jesus? I, I found this quote yesterday, and it, it was one of the best quotes I've ever read. So I want to share it with you from Robert Murray McChain. If you could hear Christ praying for me, in the next room. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Let that encourage you today. Jesus is praying for you. Just like he prayed for Simon Peter. Peter, I've prayed for you. Satan asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you and you will stand. Jesus is praying for you. Finally, as I close, what's the disciples' response to the ascension? What should ours be? Look at verse 52 of chapter 24. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing in the temple blessing God. The response to Jesus' victory is worship and small joy. Great joy. What about you? What kind of emotion stirs up in your heart when you think about the ascension of Christ, the victory of Christ? What does that produce inside of you? Listen, the more we grow in faith in Jesus, the more joy it should produce. The most mature Christians I know weep the hardest and laugh the deepest. That somehow they have this complicated emotional life that they share in God. See, the Apostle Paul says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so the Christian life, is one where as you mature and you know the heart of God and you know the world and the state it's in, you simultaneously have a deeper grief, deeper pain. You feel for the wickedness and the sadness in people's lives deeper, but at the same time, your joys get deeper. Your happiness in God gets deeper. And so as you meditate on the ascension of Christ, it should produce this great joy and yet longing and sadness because our love is not with us right now physically. We long to be reunited with our love. So church, this glorious text remind us, reminds us our purpose until Jesus returns. He has commissioned the disciples and us. We're all commissioned to go in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can personally know God deeply and intimately through this word daily and also proclaim and be witnesses of this glorious word to the world, to everyone you know, where you work, play, live, every nation, every neighborhood, every street. And this gospel is powerful to save, and we're going to celebrate that now. We're going to celebrate three baptisms of our brothers right here of how God God's spirit has worked in their lives, and God is powerful to save. Let me remind you quickly what we are doing here with baptisms. When we baptize someone, and someone decides to get baptized, they are publicly declaring to the world. This is why you don't do baptisms. I got baptized in a bathtub with like two people. This is why you don't do it privately. It's a public statement of your association, your unity, your oneness with Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so the water represents like ground. And when someone goes under the water, it's like they're being buried figuratively. And then when they rise from the water, it's like they're rising again. Just like Christ was buried and rose again. We associate with him, and it's a foreshadow of the future coming of Christ when we're all resurrected. And so the baptism, when we do that, we are saying, I'm with him. 
He is my Savior. He is my Lord. And that water represents how every sin has been forgiven. And I'm the Lord's. So we're going to celebrate that together. So we're going to have a few moments of transition. And I'm going to welcome um, the bapt- uh, those who are getting baptized. Get ready. If you have children in the younger ministry, go get them now because we want them to be part of this. And the, the worship team is going to lead us. Um, and then we're going to celebrate these baptisms. And uh, Pastor Ross is back in the house, and Charlotte is here, and so uh, he's going to be baptizing Johnny, and then Pastor Daniel's going to be baptizing um, uh, Noland and Eric. So this is amazing. This is super exciting. And I just welcome you to rejoice in heaven. You remember in the Gospel of Luke, when one sinner comes, there's a party in heaven. Let us give God glory and rejoice rightly for what he has done.